With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Taking a walk. He did some miracles. And the number one thing was when he made it stop raining. It was raining cats and dogs. It had been raining for two days straight. When we got out of the bus, it was nothing but mud uh, around us. And he said, would you like to see it stop raining? And we're like, that would be nice. He went to the stage for the first time in two days. The rain stopped. The sun came out. And as he gets off stage, he said, did I do it or not? Welcome to the Taking a Walk podcast, where we celebrate music history and the people behind the music. It was Christmas Day in 2006 when we lost the great James Brown. And on this episode, your host Buzz Knight celebrates the life of James Brown with two special guests. Author James Sullivan wrote the book, The Hardest Working Man, How James Brown Saved the Soul of America. In Super Frank Cop C-Das, James Brown's former manager and friend. Here is Buzz Knight with James Sullivan. Well, James, as we uh, sit in a world of divide and challenges, if uh, James Brown were alive today, um, what sort of force in the world do you think he would be? Yeah, that's a good question. I would like to think that he would have rediscovered sort of the social power that he amassed for himself as a superstar in the 1960s that he'd be calling for people to come together i'm sh i feel pretty confident that he probably would have had something to say during the black lives matter protests uh, obviously i think we most of us know at this point that al sharpton who is you know um often seen 
um, around uh, events involving the African-American community was kind of groomed at the knee of James Brown. Um, Al Sharpton was sort of a kid preacher when he came under James Brown's wing. They stuck together pretty tightly for years. They actually, there was a, there was a moment during the Reagan presidency where James Brown uh, had an audience with Reagan in the White House and he brought Al Sharpton. But so, so, so my book, The Hardest Working Man, which I wrote several years ago, is specifically about, the subtitle is How James Brown Saved the Soul of America. And it's specifically about how Mr. Brown recognized at a certain point in the mid-60s that he had some cultural clout. And what I often said when the book came out was that in a, in a way similar to Muhammad Ali, uh, who obviously you know used his uh, worldwide fame on behalf of his speaking out on all kinds of issues, whether it was Vietnam or race relations or lots of other things. Uh, James Brown did the same thing in the mid and late 60s. I had just moved back to Boston a few years before writing this book, and, and there's this famous story about how James Brown played the Boston Garden the night after Martin Luther King was killed. And the uh, the city had initially uh, thought about canceling the show because they didn't want people out on the streets. And ultimately, the show actually went on. And not only did it go on, but it was broadcast live on WGBH, which is Channel 2 in Boston. And so I used that uh, moment to kind of as a, as a kind of window into this idea that James Brown uh, spoke out a lot about a lot of different issues affecting the country in the 1960s. He, you know, campaigned for he he himself who was not a great student, campaigned for kids to stay in school. He talked often about um, black independence and um, supporting uh, the black community, supporting each other by starting their own businesses. And he, you know, led by example in that way. And then he, of course, did this, uh, you know, uh, performed this this famous show at the Boston Garden the night after Dr. King was killed, which, you know, by many reports, uh, Boston, although there were some disturbances on the streets, the level of protesting and rioting was much lower in Boston than uh, elsewhere in the country the night after King was killed uh, because all eyes were on James Brown. Um, so the long, you know, that's a long winded way of uh, getting around to back around to your question, which is. Uh, if he was still alive today and, and healthy, I would like to think that he would probably still be uh, attempting, or maybe he would have returned to using some of that cultural and political clout that he that he uh, gained for himself in the 60s. How was he able to balance the turbulence in his uh, family life with uh, his work? <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of the James Brown story. I'm not sure that he did. You know, one of the things that led me to want to write this book and focus on the 60s was that um, by the 90s, you know, if later generations knew anything about James Brown, they thought he was this kooky older guy who showed up on Larry King, you know, uh, you know, half out of his mind or whatever. Um, he kind of squandered and 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 the, the, the biopic um, with Chadwick Boseman playing him. It kind of reflects a lot of that. You know, there's the episode that the film starts with, actually, where he, you know, is uh, high and shows up with a rifle at, you know, his one of his offices in Georgia, um, wonder, you know, 
it had been rented out to some insurance group or whatever and he's you know wondering why they're there and starts shooting shooting up the place and shooting bullets into the ceiling or whatever i mean like obviously it went off the rails a little bit for him later in life you know unfortunately i think like a lot of uh celebrities and he had taken a lot of responsibility on himself he had you know huge numbers of people on his payroll throughout his career so he was responsible not just for himself but for lots of other folks the the stress uh you know overwhelmed him at, at a certain point and uh and i also think that in the early years of hip-hop there was a lot of talk about how he was not very happy with uh hip-hop producers appropriating his music although it was so clearly um uh, such a great fit with hip-hop beats and i think a lot of that was i mean it was some of it was about getting paid obviously but a lot of it also was about the fact that he had to come to terms with with the idea that he no longer had the social capital that he had had in the 60s and 70s he was not nearly as famous um and you know a younger generation was taking over and he wasn't going to be uh, a superstar for the rest of his life and i you know he was you know frankly a, you know a, an egotistical guy uh uh, who was, you know, hyper proud, um, and, uh, and, 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 and probably took it hard that, uh, that he was, you know, kind of being showed the door, you know, um, even though so much of that early hip hop music is based on James Brown rhythms, um, and fantastically. So that wasn't what mattered to him. It was that, you know, these young guns were, were kind of, you know, uh, inching him towards the door and he didn't like it. Talk about his, uh, disciplined approach that he demanded the excellence out of his all of his bands. Um, can you can you discuss that? Yeah, um, he grew up uh, at a time where you know you, if you were a performer, you talked the talk and walked the walk. So you dressed fine. I mean, one of my other books is about the history of blue jeans, and I always found it funny that uh, James Brown pretty famously refused to let his bandmates band members wear blue jeans uh even even never mind on stage uh, where they all wore matching suits they couldn't even wear blue jeans in his traveling entourage when they were later traveling when they were going in the airports or whatever because it made it could to him denim was the was the workwear of prisoners and he had spent time as a young man in prison and had worked his way out of that so to him you know you dressed super fine you you know you wore the flashiest clothes you 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 carried yourself like a star and you know famously he would you know he had these very tightly rehearsed choreographed bands and if anyone hit a wrong note or you know uh took a wrong step in the in the in the choreography in the horn department or whatever he famously would flash uh, fingers at them, flash five fingers at them. And that would mean you just got docked five bucks for missing that step. And after the show, you're going to owe me. Uh, and they hated seeing those flashing fingers. You know, he, he'd do it as part of his own, one of his dance steps. So the audience didn't necessarily what was going on, knew, know what was going on. But the uh, but the musicians absolutely did. And they hated it. When Bootsy Collins and his band, they were, you know, really young. They were like 19 or 20 years old, if I remember correctly, joined um, to become the new JBs, the you know James Brown's new band. When um, a bunch of other band members left on mass around 1970, uh, Bootsy and his you know colleagues were they they couldn't stand it. You know, like they were freewheeling young guys, and they only lasted a year or two with James Brown because he was such a disciplinarian. Well, lastly, in your research that you did about James, 
Um, was there one thing that you discovered that really surprised you that you didn't know before you did the research? Well, there were lots of things that I didn't know. Um, I mean, he was um, a magnanimous person, um, for sure. And I mentioned earlier that he was very much a huge part of his political drive to the extent that he had one was just uh, advocating on behalf of black communities supporting each other and starting their own businesses and not and sort of, you know, declaring their independence from the the mainstream world in America, the white world. So he bought the the radio station that he had come up at um, in Augusta, Georgia. He around this time, around early 1970 or so, started a chain of restaurants, which didn't last. But he was very much of a businessman who, um, you know, and this all on top of, you know, sort of carrying a dozen musicians and, you know, however many more touring members and uh, people working at, a, you know, uh, at his organization. I mean, he carried a lot of people and was, uh, you know, carried a guy like Bobby Bird, who was his sort of right hand man for, for the, all of his life, basically. Um, and so um, politically... Uh, he came out in support of Richard Nixon, and some in the black community were not particularly happy about that, in part because Nixon obviously was, you know, um, responsible for much of the war in Vietnam and other reasons. But, you know, James Brown's thinking was, this is a guy who's uh, doing, who who is uh, supporting black independence and black business. And so because of that, I'm going to, I'm going to throw my weight to him. And um, so you know the 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 thing that surprised me was also the thing i think i would say that um led me to do the book in the first place was that he did have an enormous amount of cultural capital and um what you know around this time period that i covered late 60s into the early 70s anything that james brown said carried an awful lot of weight in this culture it, it was fun kind of digging out some of the threads and finding out where he um how he developed some of this some of these ideas, um, and um, um, it was a, it was a joy to spend a couple of years uh, sort of immersed in his music. Thanks for helping us celebrate the the life of James. We'll be right Brown. back with more of the Taking a Walk podcast. Welcome back to the Taking a Walk podcast. Here is Buzz Knight with Super Frank Cop C Das. James Brown's former manager and friend. So would you identify yourself, sir, and tell us, uh, tell us who you are, what are you doing these days, and how are you able to help us celebrate the life of uh, James Brown? Ah, well, that's interesting because currently I am nowhere near the music business anymore. After spending, oh, probably close to 30 years in the music business, I am now immersed in television and the television broadcast industry and what is known as 5G broadcast, which is a brand new platform that isn't rolled out to the public yet. But how do I celebrate James Brown every day? Well, I'm going to say I cannot escape him any day of my life. He is somewhere there. And he always said, after I'm gone, if you hear my song, you know I'm talking to you. And it'll be the strangest places I hear it. Like all of a sudden, 
I'm listening to a program that he really has no contact with or no relationship with. And all of a sudden they'll play a song and it's like, okay, that was strange. And he, we were walking through a hotel lobby one time and all of a sudden his songs came on back to back to back. And we're like, what is that all about? And they weren't playing his kind of music either. So, and I was with somebody else I worked with in the James Brown world. And we're both looking at each other saying, he's here right now. No question about it. Uh, some of the things I look back at and really uh, shake my head, laugh, but he did some miracles. And the number one thing was when he made it stop raining. We were going to Glastonbury one year. The first time he did this, we're headed to Glastonbury. It was raining cats and dogs. It had been raining for two days straight. When we got out of the bus, it was nothing but mud uh, around us. And he said, uh, would you like to see it stop raining? And we're like, that would be nice. And he went to the stage for the first time in two days the rain stopped. The sun came out for his performance. At the end of his performance, the clouds closed back up just like a curtain, and it started raining again. And as he gets off stage, he said, did I do it or not? And we're like, are you kidding? And we saw him do that two more times at different events where he said, you want me to make it stop raining again? I'll do it right now. And he did. And we're like, okay, he does have some powers. Wow. I would say supernatural. Yeah, he was supernatural. That's for sure. And we had a great time working with him. Uh, it, there were a lot of fun moments. Uh, he became good friends with my mother and would call her from the road and they'd sing on the phone together. The next thing I know... My mother is, and I'm an adult at this point, a 50-year-old adult at this point. And I have my mother lecturing me about drinking the night before. And I'm like, what is this all about? And she'd say, well, he let her call him James. And she'd be like, James and I had a conversation last night, and you shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, go away. Hang up the phone now. Thank you. And then he'd say to me, yeah, I talked to your mama last night. We both think you shouldn't be drinking like that if you go out partying. I'm like, no, you're just jealous. Leave me alone. <laughs> so I mean, there were a lot of, oh, let's see, what else? When uh, If it was just Mr. Bobbin and myself with him in the limo, he loved to tell jokes. And we go, oh, no, he's not going to tell us jokes, is he? Because his jokes took forever. They were long, long, long jokes. And when he ended, he, it, we'd be like, where's the punchline? And he, he'd start laughing hysterically. And we're like, there's no punchline. And he said, yeah, I just told you the punchline. And we'd be like, yeah, we missed it. It's not a funny joke. And he'd be like, it was funny. And we get into big fights about how it was funny and not funny. 
but it was all in good fun and we had a great time doing that. I have a sense that every day with him, you were like me right now in tears laughing. Yes, absolutely. It was tears laughing. He always tried to. So I had to sing and dance with him to close the show if I was there. So at Sex Machine, at the very end of the show, I'd get called on stage. I had to go out. We had our routine. Then I went to the center of the stage with him, and we sang out the rest of the remainder of the show. So if first of all, if I didn't come out, I got fined 25 bucks. And as he'd come off the stage, his hand would be out to get paid for the fine. The second thing he did when I did come out, he tried to throw me off, do something every night to throw me off. So we were at the Oxygen Festival in Dublin one night and 100,000 kids out there. I come out, uh, we do the dance part, we go to the center of the stage. He looks at me and he said, you finished the show. And he walks right off. And he's laughing. Of course, the band is laughing. They're looking for what's he going to do to him tonight. And I'm standing there in the middle of the stage to close out this show. So I just start singing my part. And then he came out and finished it. But he was hysterical laughing. So there were a lot of things like that. And a lot of James Brown isms that took place as well, which were, yeah, um, I don't know, you might want to cut this out, but I'm not sure. He'd say, you know, that man stuff that comes out down there. I ain't talking about the yellow stuff. I'm talking about that other stuff. And you're like, yeah, and your point is what? (laughs) He said, if you don't get rid of that stuff at least once a day, it backs up right in your head and makes you crazy. (laughs) So you have to get rid of that stuff once a day. And you're like, okay, (laughs) thank you. And he would ask, did you get rid of that stuff today? You're cranky. (laughs) Uh, So, and he also liked women with um, a well end down in the rear end, right? And we'd be walking through an airport, he'd get stopped. And he'd point to it and said, this is what I'm talking about. He said, that's what life's all about. And you'd be like, okay. So there was a lot of fun. A lot of times we had uh, that were really, really um, special, to say the least, uh, that we had a good time. Um, uh, We, in 2000, well, I'm of the belief he was murdered in 2006. Uh, which is already 17 years ago, feels like yesterday. Uh, There was a CNN podcast done earlier this year about it again. And I am a believer that his life was cut short. Uh, He was very excited about what was going to happen in 2007. So John Legend had written a, a duet for he and Aretha Franklin that we had for about a year and it just said Grammy all over it. Uh, John wrote a brilliant song and we couldn't get him to sing it. And he's like, it's disrespectful to my wife to sing it. And I'm like, oh, please, 
what's going on? He said, uh -uh, I ain't singing it. And then Mr. Bobbitt, who is his personal manager, saw Aretha in New York and said, are you going to do that song with Mr. Brown? And she said, I ain't singing with that son of a bitch. And it's like, oh, something's going on here. Well, we found out they had a torrid love affair that had never been resolved. Wow. So we asked and asked, and finally, we actually had two other songs written for Mr. Brown, brand new ones, by a 25-year-old in L.A. He loved the songs. He said, this kid's got the fuck. And he was going to go. So Mr. Brown died on Christmas Day uh, of uh, 2006. And for New Year's Day, January 1st and 2nd, we had a studio booked in, uh, where was it? In Montreal to record for two days. And I said to him, Mr. Brown, I think part of the problem that you faced in the past couple decades is you were never meant to record with Pro Tools in sessions and taking apart sessions. Your magic is going in the studio, recording it straight through live, and there's your single, right? And he looked at me and goes, I think you're right. So that's what we put together for January 1st and 2nd of 2007, was to record his part of that John Legend song with Aretha, and two brand new songs. And that was one thing. Then March of that year, we were going to do five songs in five days uh, with Joss Stone uh, to go away with her and do that. And then the funniest thing. So anytime I asked him or told him about a new tour, it would be, no, I'm not doing it. It didn't mean, no, he's not doing it. It means, no, he doesn't understand it yet. It hasn't sunk in because he did absolutely everything. Uh, he loved being on the road. It's what he lived for. And we, uh, I said to him, I have a crazy idea for you this year in 2007. What if you do the Pride Parade on a float? with Joss Stone and Justin Timberlake doing Sex Machine. And you see, you sing Sex Machine, the float stops, and then you do what you do at concerts where you tell people, now look at the person on your right and tell them you love them. Now look at the person on your left and tell them you love them too. And then go into Sex Machine and keep going, right? And we keep doing that. He loved that idea. He was all over it. Uh, Josh, uh, Josh Stone was all over it. And Justin was like, that is great. I love it. So there were a lot of fun things, not to mention a full schedule of shows. And when I started working with him, he said, I just have one favor I'd like to ask of you. I said, what is it? He said, I want to play to 10,000 people one more time in my life. I said, 10,000 done. And the summer, I believe it was 2005, he played to 2.4 million that summer alone between all the festivals we were at. Uh, and of course, anytime there were 100,000 people out there, they all came to see him. 
forget anybody else on the festival band. They were all there to see him. And especially after Dave Grohl said to his tent load of people, his 100,000 people, what are you doing here watching me? You should be across the field watching James Brown. Wow. So we had a lot of fun. So is your belief, though, that his life was taken uh, because of the robust plans and schedule that he was excited about? Is, is that why you feel that way? I feel his life was taken because he, he wanted to move to, back to New York with his wife. And we said, okay, if you want to do that, you need to stay quiet about it and just do it when you're ready to move. And Mr. Brown could not stay quiet about anything. So he told his business manager at the time that he wanted to move. And his business manager said, you're not going anywhere. You're staying right here where he could control him a lot better. Uh, This is a horrendous story. But he took Mr. Brown on a ride uh, through Barnwell, South Carolina. And he pulled over to the side of the road with Mr. Brown in the car, and he pointed to a noose in a tree and said, we still do that to people who don't listen down here. So he actually scared him. When I heard of that story, which was a couple weeks later, I went absolutely haywire with his business manager saying, how dare you do anything like that? But um, he saw that if Mr. Brown moved to New York, he'd lose control over him and his money. That's what he was afraid of. And he thought he was going to administer the estate after Mr. Brown was gone and thought he had his cash cow all set. We had a $100 million offer on the table right before Mr. Brown died for basically a lot of his rights. And they wanted it to go through, but they didn't want to give him any of the money. So his business manager was kind of thinking, this is a great way for me to get a lot of money at once. So there were a lot of motivations at that point for Mr. Brown not being around. He stood in the way. So when you think about... It's sad. It's terribly sad. When you think about if he were alive today in this divided world that we live in and always being so at the foreground of speaking his mind, what do you think he'd be saying about the way things are today? Probably the same as he saw then, which is people need to communicate. And music being the universal language is what brings people together. So he always said, we have to talk to each other. That's why it is at his shows, he would say, turn to the person on your right and tell them you love them. And the left, tell them you love them too. We all need to love each other. So that is a a message he sent out at every single show he was at. Um, And he always said, Music is the universal language that will unite us. So I think he feels the same way today as he felt back then, that we just need to talk to each other, respect each other. 
So I know you stated earlier he, you still feel his presence, but do, do you ever have dreams uh, about him that uh, that happened that you? Of course, <laughs> that happened that are happening. <laughs> the past doesn't seem to come up. It's always the current day. And it's like you wake up and you go, yeah, but you're not here. And, he, and you hear him say in your head, yeah, but I am. I'm always with you. And his presence, I feel his presence every day to this day. And I, let's see. So he said to me, uh, I'm going to work with you till I'm 100 years old. And I'd say, that's the day I quit. I will have had plenty of you by then. We're done when you're 100. So he died at 73. Actually, here's another little story. He wasn't 73. He never had a birth certificate. He was actually 78. And I used to say to him, Mr. Brown, why is it that all your friends from school, all the people you said you grew up with are five years older than you? I said, you're you're making this up that you're five years younger. He said, I'm just smarter than all of them. That's why. Oh. So he was actually 78 when he passed. So let's see, add 17 years to that since he passed. 78, 85, 95, I would have had five more years to work with him. <laughs> oh, man, super frank. Thanks for celebrating James Brown on this episode. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. There are so many stories. It was an honor and a privilege to work with him and part of music history. I wish we had gotten some of 2007 uh, done and he could have won a Grammy. That would have meant a lot. Oh, we love you, James. We love you. And, and the jokes are really funny. No, they're not. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> I will say that to this day. I would not subject anybody to his joke. <laughs> Thanks, Super Frank. You're welcome. You're the best. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Taking a Walk podcast. Share this and other episodes with your friends and follow us so you never miss an episode. Taking a Walk is available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.